have some first-time guests here for 2017. I'd like to thank you guys for coming to Redwood and checking us out today. Uh, I don't know. Um, introduced his name to me. Jackson. Okay. Jack. Uh, no, it is good to have uh, John and Sally back. Um, if you haven't got a chance to come up here and harass them, please do so when the service... John, especially. Don't harass Sally. She's sweet. But John... Um, Yes. Uh, in, in a three-minute conversation, he already threatened me with his cane twice. So, well, good morning. Welcome to Redwood. I'm glad to see you all here. If, uh, if this really is your first time here, uh, glad to have you here and uh, glad you're spending some of your Sunday with us, uh, some of your weekend with us here. A couple of years ago, I got to go on a trip to New York City. I don't know if you've ever been to New York, but it's, it's one of my favorite places I've visited because it is... It's just so different. It's, it's kind of crazy, but it's, it's, so, it's big, but it's just neat. Uh, but I went on this trip with a group of students from uh, the Bible college I went to, and we met up with some students from another Bible college that I was at, or th- that uh, is in Illinois, and we were there for a class that was put on by the Orchard Group Institute. The Orchard Group is a church planning group that specifically targets large, urban, uh, multicultural areas. And so the whole purpose of this trip was to learn about uh, how to use and, and, and impact culture with ministry, specifically a diverse culture or something that's different than we're used to. And so we kind of broke that down, what, how each culture determines its own kind of values of right and wrong or appropriate or inappropriate. Uh, for example, uh, each culture kind of determines how you should dress, uh, what's appropriate to wear uh, to work or to uh, certain events or to church. I mean, you think about this. Uh, some churches in America still suit and tie every week or a dress every week. Uh, some of them let their preacher get up here in a flannel shirt that's wrinkled in jeans and they're cool with it. Uh, but your culture kind of determines what's right or wrong, and it's just something you've constructed, and by you I mean the culture is constructed over a period of time. So we talked about uh, how culture depicts fashion and how uh, culture determines how you prioritize your finances, what you spend money, how you, how you spend it, what you spend it on, kind of how much or how little you'll spend on things. Uh, we talked about food and what's appropriate with food for certain cultures. And we just kind of went across the whole city, basically mapped out Manhattan and, and got just this multicultural tour of the diversity of Manhattan, the different uh, ethnic areas, the different socioeconomic areas. Uh, one of the parts I liked was on Sunday of that, of that week we were there, we went to church services in two different locations. The first was on the lower east side of Manhattan, a very lower middle class, working class area, area that uh, when the uh, immigration came in in the early 20th century was very heavily Irish and German and Dutch. But we went to this church called Lamb's Church of the Nazarene, and if you walk in, it, I mean, it's one you probably would just pass by all the time. It, it's, nothing catches your eye about it, but you walk in, and it's a bilingual service, almost entirely Hispanic audience, husband and wife team. Uh, he's preaching English, he's preaching Spanish, sometimes they'd switch and confuse everybody. What we didn't know was on the floor just below, uh, we, we learned this later, there's actually the same service being done in Mandarin, in Chinese. Uh, just this neat area, but this was a very low-income church. In fact, their stage was lit with utility lights you might have in your garage or on your back porch, uh, something you might put under the hood of your car. That's how they were lighting their stage. Find out later, this guy has a doctorate, extremely well-accomplished pastor, extremely well-accomplished person. 
But that night then, as a contrast, we went to the upper west side of Manhattan, very affluent area near Columbia University, uh, right outside of Central Park where a lot of uh, celebrities have lived throughout the years. But we went to Timothy Keller's Redeemer Church, pristine, beautiful, gorgeous facility. And we we saw uh, that church service take place. And just the contrast of two extremely respected and extremely accomplished pastors, but on opposite ends of who it is they're trying to reach. Uh, We went and toured different neighborhoods and got an architectural tour of the city and uh, visited the Museum of Modern Art. Uh, We got to go... uh, Check out different ethnic neighborhoods, different socioeconomic neighborhoods. My favorite part, because I love to eat, is we got a different kind of food tour. And so every meal was specifically picked out with a different ethnic background in mind. And probably my favorite night of the whole trip was a a meal on Saturday night. We went just outside of of Liberty, or I'm sorry, of of Battery Park on uh, Lower Manhattan to this Asian restaurant for some reason called Liberty View. I mean, don't think of an Asian restaurant called Liberty View, but that's what it was called. The reason it was called Liberty View was because it looks out across New York Harbor, the Statue of Liberty. So it's right on the Hudson River, and we got to be there for sunset while it was, it was, uh, the night was getting on. But what I loved about it was after dinner, they basically gave us free time the rest of the night, and we didn't, we didn't really have a curfew, so it was, feel free to explore. And, and me kind of being the introvert that I am, I thought, I'm just going to take on New York by myself for a little while. And so everybody scatters, and I just sat there on the deck while the sun sets, and I see this. This is my view from the deck of this Liberty View restaurant, looking out down the, the last little bit of the Hudson River across New York Harbor, and I see this view. And I just started thinking about the history of this area. And I started thinking about all of the people who have come through here and seen the same thing that I'm seeing right now. And I think about how between 1892 and 1954, over 12 million people came sailing through these very waters in search of a better hope, in search of a better promise for their lives. See, between that, that time frame, that 62-year time frame, 12 million people sailed across here, and they would have sailed right past the Statue of Liberty, and they would have seen Lady Liberty with her torch held high, and they would have read the words on the pedestal, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. And they would have sailed from there to that building in the very middle of the picture. That's Ellis Island. And there at Ellis Island, they get checked in. Uh, they go through the Great Hall. They get processed. They become citizens. And from Ellis Island, some would have come right back across the river into Manhattan and, and scattered throughout Manhattan, But about 10 million went to that building on the far right. You can kind of see with the the big steeple sticking up. That's Jersey City Terminal or Jersey City Station. It's a train station, train depot. So they would have gotten there on a train and they would have gone off across America to find their new hope, to find that search of the American dream. The American dream, that's, that's something we've all chased, right? That's something we've all uh, wanted to try and get a part of. The American dream is the promise that you can become anything you want to become if you set your mind to it. If you work hard enough, if you put yourself in the right spot at the right time, you can become anything you want to become. That's the great American dream. You guys know as well as I do, though, the great American dream sometimes gets halted by the harsh realities of life. And there are certain things out of our control that, that block that. Life doesn't really care what your hopes are. Life doesn't care what your dreams are. Life's going to do what it wants to do, and you're going to have to adapt. 
But fortunately for us, thankfully for us, we have a God who holds firm to his promise. We have a God who doesn't get in the way of his promise. We're in the middle of this series called Greater Than. We've been working our way through the book of Hebrews. If, uh, if, if by chance you're unfamiliar with the book of Hebrews, or unfamiliar with the Bible, Hebrews, uh, you can kind of see where my marking is here. It's about 95% of the way towards the back of your Bible. In fact, there's only eight books that come after Hebrews, so you can go to the back and, and flip your way. It's right between a letter called Philemon and a letter called James. And Hebrews is a letter. It's an epistle. It's a letter written to a group of Jewish Christians in the mid-60s AD, most likely living in Rome, right about the time that the Roman Emperor Nero is unleashing his infamous persecution of the Christians. And over the next several years, Nero's going to slaughter hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of people simply for being Christians. And so this letter that is written is a letter of encouragement. It's a letter just imploring its readers to stay strong, to persevere. And over the first several chapters of this book, about the first four and a half chapters, the writer has really painted a picture of who Jesus is, trying to tell them that Jesus is greater than anything they think, anything they do, anything they are. And now in the last part of chapter five and getting into chapter six, we see a transition from the who to the why. Not just who Jesus is, but now why you should follow him. As you might recall from last week, we, we looked at uh, the last part of chapter 5 and the beginning of 6, and we saw the writer really scold his readers for not doing what they should be doing, for not maturing in the faith like they should be, not really letting go of their, their Judaism. And then he gave them a warning that really got their attention, kind of a scary warning of, if you don't let go, then you risk turning away and never coming back. And that's an, an area of complete hopelessness. And so what he does here, as, as he starts the section we're going to look at today, starting in verse 9, he starts with an encouragement. You know, he just gave, gave a, a scolding and a warning and now an encouragement. And he says this in chapter 6, verse 9, though we speak in this way, talking about that warning, talking about the scolding, in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Now, I used to, uh, you guys know I used to coach and, and teach at, at a high school level. When I coached, uh, I was just, just having a conversation with John about this, I wasn't a big yeller. Normally, if I had to yell, it was simply so I could be heard. My voice doesn't carry, it's not one of those that gets out across, so I had to yell and scream sometimes just so somebody would hear me on the other side of the field. But if I had to get on to one of my players, when I was finished with it, kind of once I let it sink in and let them settle for a second, I went over and then gave a word of encouragement. One of my coaches used to do that. He'd say, he'll kick you in the pants, and then he'll put his arm around your shoulder. And I try to be the same way as a parent. When I get on to one of my girls, especially Elsie, because she's starting to get old enough to understand this now, once she settled down and kind of stopped crying, I'd go up to her and say, now, why did you get in trouble? Let's talk about it. Why did you get in trouble? Do you know why I did what I did? You see, it's not because I'm trying to make up for it. I want her to understand what happened. I want her to understand the punishment but I want her to understand why. That's the encouragement. Because I want her to know she's better than what she's doing right now. The promise of who she can become is better than who she is right now. That's what I used to say to my players. I used to get on to my players because I'd say, you're better than this. Not to shame them, not to discourage them, but to say, I believe you're a better person than what's happening right now. I believe you can become a better person than what's happening right now. And that's what's happening right here in Hebrews. 
the writer is, is telling his readers, yes, you're doing this wrong. You're not taking a step further in your maturity, but you're not the ones who are giving up and, and walking away. You're not the ones committing apostasy. Yes, it's happening, but it's not you, so, so hold on to that. That's something that you can be sure of. And the reason why, he says, he addresses in verse 12, or so, I'm sorry, he addresses in verse 9, that he feels sure of better things. That's that promise of what's to come. The better things in Jesus. The better things that they're starting to lose sight of because they're becoming blinded by the world and blinded by Nero and blinded by the persecution and blinded by the attraction to return to their comfortable life. And he tells them that these better things he hopes leads to this. Look at verse 12. He says that you will become imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. Now these are Jews, so of course he's going to go back and mention somebody they know very well. And so over the next few verses, he talks about the promises given to Abraham. Now these are Jews again. Abraham, Father Abraham had many sons. I'm one of them. You know, you know the song. I forgot it just now, but you know the song, hopefully. But that's the, he's the father of the Jewish nation. And so they're going to understand the promises that were made to Abraham. And over the next couple of verses, he quotes a promise that Abraham received in Genesis 22. If you've got your Bibles, flip over there. If you've got your devices, navigate over there. Because in Genesis 22, God gives Abraham a promise. But to understand this promise, we've got to go back a little bit further in the story. Because you see here, he's making a promise that the world is going to be blessed through Abraham. And he says that your descendants will multiply as the stars in the heaven or the sand that's on the seashore. But at this point, what's just happened in the story here is Abraham has offered up his son Isaac as a sacrifice. His only son, Isaac, who he has waited forever to get. So to understand this promise, look at Genesis chapter 12. We're going we're gonna to look at that for a second. Genesis 12 says this, Now the Lord said to Abram, he's known as Abram at this point, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. Now see if you can count the promises that God gives him here. And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you. I'll make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Seven promises in one right there that God makes to Abraham. From Genesis 12, to Genesis 21, when Isaac is finally born, is 25 years. So in the meantime, Abraham has had to be left with some doubt. Some, no, uh, you, you can almost assuredly have some doubts. He takes matters into his own hands at one point. He almost assuredly has some moments of impatience. He almost assuredly has some moments of questioning. But he holds on to his faith. See, the interesting thing here is at Genesis 12, we don't know much about Abraham or Abram, as he's known at this point. He's mentioned at the very end of chapter 11, just in a, a chronology and kind of a, a, a genealogy, if you will. And what we do know is that his father, Terah, was a pagan priest. So it's kind of safe to say that Abram probably wasn't really a believer in God at this point. But God calls him, calls him away from everything he's ever known and gives him this amazing promise. But Abram's 75 years old without children. Now, age at this point in history was a little different than it is today, but 75 is still past the age of childbearing. And he's promised him a son. And Abram's like, yeah, right. And later when he tells his wife Sarah, she laughs. Not like because she thinks it's funny, but because she thinks it's absurd. 
She laughs. You ever have that something so ridiculous you just laugh at it? That's what his wife Sarah does. Now flashback forward here. Abraham has just received this promise 25 years later. But some of those other promises that God gave him, the promise of a great nation, that's 400 years before that's fulfilled. The promise that all the peoples of the earth will be blessed because of him, that's Jesus. That's 2,000 years later. See, Abraham wasn't alive to see some of his promises fulfilled. But because he had faith in the promise of God, they were fulfilled. You see, Abraham understood something here. Abraham understood that God making a promise to him was different than man making a promise to him. Go back to 22 and look at verse 16. The Lord says this, by myself I have sworn. That's an important word there, by myself, or an important phrase, by myself I have sworn. See, Abraham understands that when God makes a promise, it's different than when somebody else makes a promise. See, if I make a promise to you, that promise is only as strong as my commitment to keep it. It's only as strong as what I understand truth to be. So if, if I tell you that, that I'm going to do something, you just have to trust that I'm willing to, to stay on my word. But what Abraham understands about God here is God is different. Because in God is truth. See, God is the source of truth. Truth flows from God. So God doesn't speak truth. He is truth. And when he speaks, the truth is spoken. And Abraham understands that. You see, my word is corruptible because I'm corruptible. I'm a a human being. I'm drenched in sin like, like everybody else. God is not, he's incorruptible, he's above sin. My time on earth is is fleeting, I'm fickle. God is eternal. And often I forget that. And most importantly with Abraham here, Abraham so much like me, after a period of time he takes matters into his own hands. Now for Abraham it's like 12 years, for me it would probably be half an hour, right? But he takes matters into his own hands because he's, he's like me here. He gets so blinded to the truth because of everything that's going on around him. He lets his present circumstance and his present life dictate his timing and he forgets about God's will. He assumes God's will is on his time frame. That's one of the worst things that we can do. When that happens, that's when impatience kicks in. But Abraham, despite all that, ultimately held the course. Go back to Hebrews 6 and look what the writer says in verse 15 writes this, that Abraham, having waited patiently, obtained the promise. And to be patient doesn't mean you've just got to sit there and, and not get antsy. That's going to happen. But you just have to wait patiently. Don't allow your patience to be dictated by your own clock. Don't allow it to be dictated by your own will or your own timing. Remember, God's timing and God's will are perfect. Keep your eyes focused on Jesus. That's hard to do in our world. That's hard to do with our types of personalities. Because if you do, if you allow the world to pull you away from God's will and God's timing and God's promise, you're going to miss out on the depths of that promise. In, in verse 19 of, of Hebrews 6, the writer uses an illustration to express the depths of that promise. Look at verse 19. He says this, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the interplace behind the curtain. You ever been on a boat where the water's moving, a little flow to the water? 
Or maybe, there's, maybe you're on a pond and the water's not really moving, but there's wind and it'll push you. And you understand the importance of an anchor. You put the anchor down, it ties to your boat on one end, and it buries at the, the base of the water on the other. And it holds you in place. It provides stability. And stability, that's what God is. God is stable. The hope and the faith in God's promises is stable. That's what the writer wants you to understand here, that promises of the world, they're great. But God's promise is greater. God's promise is true. God's promise is never-ending. But to understand God's promise, you have to understand three things about God. Three assumptions you have to understand about God in order to fully grasp, I think, how incredible his promises are. The first, you have to understand that God is eternal. Psalm 90 verse 2 declares that he is God from everlasting to everlasting. Jesus declares in Revelation uh, chapter 1 that I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. God is eternal, and because he is eternal, he's been ever-present to fulfill every promise that has ever been made. God is everlasting. The second assumption you have to make is that God is omnipotent. This is similar to eternal, but this takes it a step further. This declares that God is unchanging. He's eternal, yes, but he's also unchanging. Hebrews 13, we'll get to it in a few weeks, but declares that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's not only ever-present to fulfill every promise ever made, he is able to to fulfill every promise ever made. And third, God is trustworthy. His character is unquestionable. Numbers 23 says, he is not a man should he lie. In other words, he's above that. Again, I make a promise to you, it's only as good as as my ability to keep it. Now it's my intention to keep a promise if I make it, but it's only as good as my ability to keep it. But God isn't subject to the same sinful nature that I am. He's above it. And because he's above it, it's impossible for him to lie. The writer says this here in verse 18. It's impossible for God to lie. One of three things God declares that it is impossible for him to do. It's impossible for him to lie. God is the creator of all things. He's the source of love. He's the source of life, the source of joy. And he's the source of truth. But I think with understanding God's promise, you also have to be aware of two cautions of God's promise. Two, two pitfalls that unfortunately too many of us fall into too many times. The first caution that you need to be aware of is God's promises cannot be employed to coerce him. Well, what do I mean by that? I mean, too often we try to make the Bible fight against itself to get what we want. To kind of go along with what we already think and believe and desire. Here's an example There are too many churches in America today that preach what we would call the prosperity gospel or the health and wealth gospel or name it, claim it type of gospel. What they do is this. They look at some of those verses in Scripture that say anything you ask for in God's name, he'll grant you or he'll grant you the desires of your heart. And so because of that, I'm going to pray that that in God's name I get a a job with a quarter of a million dollar salary and I've got a 5,000 square foot house and all new cars and no debt and my kids are going to make all A's and get all in the best colleges ever and be super successful and, and I'm never going to have to deal with cancer. I'm never going to have to deal with sickness in my life because I'm claiming it in God's name and God, you said if I, if I say it in your name, you're going to grant it and if you don't, you're a liar. 
Anybody ever try it? Here's a dare. For the next two weeks, won't you try it? Get back with, I'm kidding, don't try it. What's happened is those verses are pulled out of context. And they're tried to be used against God. And unfortunately, there are a lot of people who believe that to be the truth. But then what happens when something doesn't go right? What happens when they try that and their mom dies from cancer? What happens when they do that and they lose a job? Man, God's not real. God can't, God's a liar. What, what's the point in trying to follow God? That's a very dangerous gospel. It's a very dangerous theology, especially for an immature Christian. The second potential pitfall you can fall into is this. You cannot confuse what God calls hope with what the world calls hope. Now, what do I mean by that? What the world calls hope is basically the assumption that tomorrow is going to be better or the assumption that something good is going to happen in the future. Author Gene King uh, said it this way, that hope is the feeling that I have, that the feeling that I have is not permanent. In other words, whatever I'm feeling now, it's not going to be permanent. It's eventually going to get better. Man, I hope I get to feeling uh, better in my chest next week. Boy, I hope this new job comes through because I really need it to support my family. Boy, I hope my kids get all A's so I, they can get a scholarship one day. That's what the world calls hope. It's the assumption and the desire that tomorrow is going to be better. But God's hope? Look what God's hope produces. It's so much greater than this. God's hope produces the following. It produces purity and patience and fulfillment and joy and stability. Just look at that list for a minute. Purity, patience, fulfillment, joy, stability. Now think for a second. Uh, Unplug maybe some of the things in your life right now. These five things. If those five things define everything in your life, how much more do you need? If those five things define my life, if everything I'm doing in my life just just speaks of purity and and I'm just patient and I wait on God and, and I seek fulfillment through God in my life and I have joy in my life, guess what? I am going to have stability. And I'm not going to really want for anything. See, there's that word again, stability. It's kind of woven throughout this passage. That's the theme. God's promise is greater because of the stability it brings. God's promise is greater because it is 100% true, because it is anchored and grounded and founded in truth. And with it comes hope and security and eternity. I mean, just think about what Jesus said, the last words uh, of the Great Commission, what the very last words of the Gospel of Matthew, I will be with you always to the end of the age. That's the promise of God. I started today off talking about the great American dream, you know, chasing after the great American dream. And I remember when I was a kid having that conversation with my dad. Kurt, you can do anything you want to do in life. You can be anything you want to be in life. There's nothing you can't do. Well, when 10-year-old Kurt heard that, he assumed he'd one day be the starting center fielder for the St. Louis Cardinals. (laughs) But (laughs) here I am today, right? So what Kurt didn't realize at that time was that that particular promise was 
impacted by the fact that I don't really have any athletic ability. And so it wasn't so much the world that got in the way, it was just kind of the way I was designed that got in the way. And so it shifted, and as I became a teenager, and, and in high school and in college, my, my great American promise was, I tell you what, I'll be the radio play-by-play guy for the St. Louis Cardinals. After all, I'm pretty good at that. And what, what better job is there in the world than watching a baseball game and telling people about it? I mean, seriously, how awesome would that be? So I went to college, got a degree, and despite graduating with a bachelor's degree in journalism and applying to stations all over the country, here I am today, right? <laughs> you see, that promise that, that that journalism degree brought with it and all of those, those applications and resume tapes I sent out didn't render a single callback or a single interview. And so as a result, mid-20s, Kurt just kind of lived a life in a big circle, and other than, than my family, really had nothing going for me. No breaks. For about three years, just kind of spun. Part-time job after part-time job, and it was so frustrating. And, and finally, the one break I did get was when my friend said, hey, you should try teaching. And I'm like, no way. Never wanted to be a teacher, ever. But that was a break that happened, and I followed that. And around that same time, uh, this girl came into my life, and came into my life only because of a situation where her sister absolutely embarrassed the life out of me. Unwittingly, she didn't mean to, but absolutely embarrassed the life out of me. And because she felt bad, that girl apologized and felt sympathy for me and a friendship started. And because of that, I realized later, I'm chasing my promises. The great American dream, I'm not chasing God's promises. And eventually I start chasing God's promises. And here I am today. Because God's promises are greater than anything I can come up with on my own. God's promises are greater than any of my own desires. Anything that I think I can do. And now here I am today. In this situation in my life. Right where I'm supposed to be. Here's your takeaway today. This week, take a moment and decide what your next step needs to be so you can understand God's promises for your life. It doesn't matter what station of life you're at. You might be a teenager. You might be in your 70s or 80s. God still has a promise for your life. God still has a place for you. He still has a plan for your life. Find out what that is this week. Find out where God wants to take you next. All you have to do is step back, step back and step back. Find a moment of patience, pray, and seek God first. But the little catch to this here is, you have to be willing maybe to put your own desires, your own hopes and your own wishes to the side in case he calls you in a different direction. Let's pray. Father, we are, are so thankful for God, just the promise that you've given us. God, the promise of stability and the promise of eternity. Lord, I just ask right now that that you would allow us to find times of patience, find times of, Lord, just sitting back and listening and waiting. God, I I know so many of us are action-oriented and sitting back and waiting is hard to do. But God, when you 
put something in motion. Lord, let us get out of your way. Let us not take matters into our own hands. God, we're thankful right now and ask that you would just be with this body. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.